I cannot do the history of philosophy in 15 minutes. What I can do is to draw your attention to some lesser known aspects of it that are relevant for what we are studying. We'll start with Martin Luther, an Augustinian friar who broke with the Roman Catholic Church famously in October of the year 1517, nailing 95 theses to the door of the castle church at Wittenberg. One of the things that Luther famously insisted upon, and it's kind of a keynote for the entire Protestant Reformation, is the doctrine of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the rule of faith and practice for Christians, and equally important, laymen are able to interpret it for themselves. You don't have to go to your priest or to the teaching ministry of the Catholic Church. You can read it and understand it for yourself. It's difficult for us today to realize just how subversive that idea was when Luther promoted it, but that becomes a flashpoint for an awful lot that we're going to be reading as we go forward. In fact, some of you have begun to read the Blount, and you'll notice that Blount makes much of how difficult this is. Oh, I should have to you know, learn all these languages, and then people disagree, and it would be so hard. So what Luther has done by insisting that ordinary people can read it for themselves is to open a new kind of front in religious discourse regarding how easy or difficult that is. That will come back again and again. Uh, Michel de Montaigne is not a major figure in the history of philosophy, but he was a Renaissance author who did something very important. During the Renaissance, one of the things that was a hallmark of the Renaissance is the recovery of Greek learning. And one of the things that they recovered during this period was a set of works by a set of Greek skeptics called the Pyrrhonists. Uh, the Pyrrhonist skeptics argued that for any claim you chose, you could make an equally good argument in favor of it and against it. And they even claimed to have methods to teach you how you could make an equally good argument on either side of any question. In an essay called An Apology for Raymond Sebon, Montaigne argues that this applies particularly to religious questions. And people should stop being angry at one another over their religious differences because, honestly, we are not any of us in a position to know anything. The newly discovered arguments of the skepticism popularized by Montaigne became weapons in the hands of Catholics in the Counter-Reformation. And I should describe what that was. From the year 1545, for approximately 20 years, uh, the Catholic Church convened an ongoing council called the Council of Trent. This happened just two years after the death of Copernicus, and it served as the place where the Catholics hammered out their response to the Protestant Reformation. In the Council of Trent, it was determined that Aristotle was the authority in philosophy, and Thomas Aquinas was the authority in theology. It was explicitly determined that only the people involved in the teaching ministry of the Catholic Church had the right to interpret scripture, so individual Catholics, devout Catholics, 
were not entitled to interpret scripture for themselves. This had not been part of official Catholic teaching up until that time. So, for example, it was not part of official Catholic teaching during Copernicus' lifetime. And Copernicus did not get into any trouble with anyone for anything that he said, even though he was only a minor canon in the church, and he was reinterpreting scripture and saying, no, I think this is a metaphor. This is just an accommodation to normal ways of speaking. He was fine. Galileo was not fine. Galileo flourishes and works after the Council of Trent. So Council of Trent, roughly 1545 to uh, 1564 or so, Galileo's born in 1564. So he lives in a different world. Things have changed, and the Catholic Church has toughened up its stance on a number of things. There's a figure, I don't have a picture for him, so I just put this all in a text format. François Véron, someone that we don't study much in the history of philosophy, but a very important figure for our purposes. He was a Jesuit priest, and he made a deep study of the skeptical arguments that had been unearthed and brought back to common knowledge by people like Montaigne. He used them as part of the Catholic Counter-Reformation against the Protestants, and he even wrote a book about the victorious method. This was a method of putting the Protestants in an unwinnable position. And in fact, he was so good at this, he was an eloquent speaker, he had letters from the King of France saying that he had a right to go anywhere in the kingdom and speak at any time that he wanted. And so he would go into Protestant churches and say, you have to let me speak, I have letters from the King. And then he would proceed to embarrass the Protestant ministers by asking them, what is your source of certainty? How can you have certainty regarding the things that you're teaching? The immediate response was, oh, from scripture. And then he would proceed to use skeptical arguments to show that they could not be certain with regard to these things in scripture. And in the end, they had no recourse unless they were willing to become Catholics. The Catholic Church, guided by the Holy Spirit, would lead them into all truth. So these methods, Veron wrote up, and then they were used by others to go over to England secretly. Remember at this time, uh, it was against the law to be a Catholic priest in England trying to convert people, but they would go over secretly and they would try to convert the English to Catholicism. In particular, they would try to convert young men who were studying for the Anglican priesthood, members of the clergy because they thought that would be a very effective way to promote Catholicism. But they're doing this by using these arguments, skeptical arguments, designed to show that the Protestants don't have a source of certainty. One of the people who was actually actively involved in this was William Chillingworth. Uh, as a young man, he was studying to be an Anglican priest, and he was accosted by one of these Catholics in secret who persuaded him to become a Catholic. Chillingworth left England and went across the English Channel to Douay and began studying for the Catholic priesthood in a Catholic seminary there. His teachers were so excited that they had actually got a, a, an obviously brilliant young man to convert to Catholicism, they asked him to write out his reasons for becoming Catholic. He sat down to do it, and in the course of writing out his reasons, he decided he had made a mistake. So he went back across the English Channel to England and rejoined the Anglican Church. Now, Chillingworth is important because he's one of the people who right here where the Royal Society is starting up in the history of science, uh, there were a number of people involved both in the Royal Society and in these religious arguments. Chillingworth uh, hammered out 
a distinctive English response to this challenge that Veron was using. And the distinctive English response is that certainty is unnecessary. What's required in religion is what is required of the prudent businessman in ordinary life. We are looking for probability rather than certainty. We want evidence on which a reasonable man would base decisions that matter. That evidence is sufficient. We do not need more than probability. Keep this in mind because later as we read Joseph Butler's book, The Analogy of Religion, we're going to see that he opens the book by saying that to us, probability is the very guide of life. This is a strand of thought running through English thought that we're looking not for certainty, but for probability. Probability will do the job. So Chillingworth and Wilkins and others worked on that response to the challenge of people like Veron. Francis Bacon, a major figure in English thought, even though he was not a very distinguished philosopher and not a very distinguished scientist, but he wrote extensively about the methods of science. And what's important from our point of view is that he advocates a kind of bottom-up form of empiricism. Instead of starting with principles that you intuit directly and then making all of the data fit them, he advocated patient experimentation. Grand theories are developed slowly. They're developed to account for the data. So as you see the word Baconian used in subsequent centuries, it means roughly empirical and inductive. And among the English, it's considered a great compliment to be said that one's methods are Baconian. It means that instead of taking preconceived notions and fitting the facts into them, one is starting with facts and then trying to account for them by theories. So Bacon, though not a prominent philosopher or a prominent scientist, exerted a lot of influence on English thought. And this idea of a Baconian approach is something that we'll see coming up over and over. René Descartes, 1596 to 1650. Nobody needs an introduction to Descartes, the father of modern philosophy. He was a ardent critic of scholastic or Aristotelian views, both in metaphysics and in epistemology. Um, interestingly enough, Descartes was a student at La Fleche at the time that Véron was a professor there. So here's François Véron using skeptical arguments in order to make a positive case for Catholicism over Protestantism. And what is Descartes most famous for? Using skeptical arguments in order to show the limits of skepticism and come to positive conclusions. So there is some influence on Descartes there in all probability. That takes me to the end of this, and it's good because we're almost out of time.